Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi there, everyone. Welcome to the Resuming Debate podcast where we try to have thoughtful, substantive conversations representing political views uh, across the spectrum uh, and trying to really dig uh, deeper into the issues of the day and talk about uh, solutions and, and reflect uh, diversity of perspectives. Um, today, we are going to talk about a private member's bill that I tabled recently, Bill C-257. So full disclosure, uh, I am not going to be uh, entirely neutral in the discussion of uh, of this bill, uh, but I've uh, I've assembled a number of of legal experts, top legal minds uh, that have a variety of different perspectives on my bill. So I think we're going to have a good conversation about the Canadian Human Rights Act and uh, the particulars of this proposal. So Bill C two five seven that I have tabled would add political belief and activity to the Canadian Human Rights Act as prohibited grounds of discrimination. So uh, the, the Human Rights Act uh, prohibits discrimination on particular grounds. Current grounds include um, immutable characteristics like race, um, but it, it also includes uh, characteristics that are not immutable, like religion and marital status. Uh, so a long list of, of criteria on which discrimination is prohibited. And the Federal Human Rights Act would apply to areas of, of uh, the federally regulated private sector and the actions of, uh, of the federal government and its agencies uh, for complaints about discrimination in areas of provincial jurisdiction, uh, one would uh, would use the, the, the Human Rights Act in, in one's province and, uh, and, and address one's concerns that way. So this amends the Federal Human Rights Act to add political belief and activity as prohibited grounds of discrimination. So it's to say that a person uh, should no longer be able to be fired or denied services because of their political beliefs or activity. I think there's a certain basic logic to that. We don't want uh, people getting fired because they're volunteering for a political candidate that their boss doesn't like. We don't want someone denied uh, access to a bank account because of their, uh, their posts on, on, uh, on Facebook. Uh, the same as we don't want to see discrimination on the basis of um, of religion, sexual orientation, uh, gender, uh, race. Uh, we wouldn't want to see people discriminated against on the basis of their political views. And a strong and vibrant democracy is one in which people feel free to express their views without worrying about um, having uh, service providers or their boss impose consequences on them. Uh, that is, I think, the basic logic of the bill. Um, but there's also a particular context in which I've brought the bill forward. And that's a context in which I think we see increasing uh, interest in uh, punishing people for having the quote unquote wrong political views. Uh, it seems to more and more be the kind of social trend, unfortunately, where uh, if somebody says something in public that people disagree with, uh, the impulse isn't just to challenge their views, but it's to try to uh, create some kind of consequences for that individual uh, as a result of the things they've they've said. And I think broadly, that's a, an unhealthy trend in democracy that we want people to feel free to express their views, to be have those views challenged and debated, um, but not to have a kind of dynamic where uh, people, especially people who are in a more vulnerable situation in terms of employment or their need to access services, are subject to consequences for verbalizing the uh, the wrong views. And then I, I've also said in the context of, of putting forward the bill um, that I think a reason why a lot of people are interested in this issue right now is some of the comments that the Minister of Justice made uh, about the convoy saying that um, that essentially um, 
people who have certain political views uh, who who donated to the convoy ought to be con uh, concerned, implying that uh, political views were a, were a criteria uh, that were part of the consideration about whose bank accounts uh, would be would be frozen. Now, to be fair, um, you know the. The, the government has subsequently said, uh, no, that it's it's not about people's political views. It's about illegal activity. And certainly the intention of the bill is is not to protect people who are involved in illegal activity. But the the, the tone and spirit of the government's comments suggested that we should be concerned about, uh, I think, issues of political discrimination. So that's that's my view on proposing the bill. And following its proposal, uh, there was a story that appeared in a number of media outlets uh, quoting um, a selection of, of uh, legal experts uh, who, for whatever reason, the, uh, the group of experts assembled by this particular reporter were all critical of the bill. Uh, so I have sought to assemble a somewhat more uh, balanced panel, uh, which includes, uh, in one case, the person who was quoted in that uh, more critical story, and then two other, uh, two other voices. So I have three, three eminent legal minds here to uh, to question, challenge, and discuss the, the merits of my bill and other possible changes uh, to the Canadian Human Rights Act. So uh, very pleased to introduce, first of all, uh, Mr. Uh, Paul Champ of Champ Law. He's an employment and human rights lawyer uh, who's litigated many cases involving the uh, Canadian Human Rights Act. And Paul was uh, one of the people quoted in uh, in the uh, story I referred to. Uh, also, we have Dr. Bruce Party, uh, who is the Executive Director of Rights Probe and a Professor of Law at Queen's University, and Dr. Dwight Newman, a law professor at the University of Saskatchewan and Muck Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. It is wonderful to have all three of you with us today. Thanks. Thank you very much, Garnet. Good to be here. Um, so, Paul, Maybe I'll start with you. Um, you've you've litigated cases uh, before the uh, you know involving the Human Rights Act, and uh, you were you were quoted in the original story I, I referred to. Uh, so maybe just before getting into your your take on the bill, uh, do you want to just share kind of um, uh, what what is the what is the federal jurisdiction as it pertains to the Federal Human Rights Act? What are the kinds of cases that could be brought forward? Um, you know, who who, do, who does a bill like this affect? First of all, uh, that's a great question, Garnet, and it's good to sort of inform the dialogue or the discussion we'll have is about who, who would be a who uh, who would uh, be, fall under this act. And so, the Canadian Rights Act involves uh, federal jurisdiction employers. And a federal jurisdiction employer is, well, first of all, obviously the federal government of Canada and the federal public service. Uh, federal, federal crown corporations like the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, Canada Post, and so forth. Uh, and then other um, industries that uh, work interprovincially, like broadcasting, airlines, uh, interprovincial bus lines, trains, and so forth. So uh, th this act applies to those kinds of workplaces, and those those would be the kinds of workplaces where an employee may, um, you know, if your if your amendment uh, passes, that you know, if they feel that they've been subject to unfair or differential treatment because uh, they've you know expressed a political view, um, they would be able to uh, file a complaint under this act if your if your amendment passes. Mm -hmm. uh, so so that's a that's maybe a small portion of the overall picture, but obviously people that aren't 
aren't covered right now. Is, is it fair to say that from your perspective, people aren't covered right now, that somebody could be, uh, you know, who, who worked for uh, uh, a private company in federal jurisdiction could get fired because their boss doesn't like their, the political views they're posting on Facebook? Well, you know, that's another interesting question, uh, uh, Garnet. Like the, the first thing is if it's a federal public service employer, and I know you didn't ask that, but I'll, I'll circle yeah. back to your question about private industry. Um, if it's the federal government and you're terminated or, or whatnot because of a political view that you've expressed, uh, you actually can rely on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, uh, which is our constitution and the you know freedom of uh, political belief, thought, belief and expression under Section 2 of the Charter. And, and there are cases like that. Um, one of my previous law firms, we did a case for a woman who was a sovereigntist. She supported uh, independent Quebec, but her job in the Department of uh, Heritage was to uh, negotiate with provinces around official languages programs. So um, there was a bit of an inconsistency or a perception of conflict of interest between her personal political uh, activities for an independent Quebec and her role for Canada Heritage about working to promote Canadian unity. And she was able to rely on successfully, I would add, on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So that would be the kind of case that, you know, that person wouldn't need the protection. But uh, turning to private industry, like you're talking about, if it's something like, let's say, Air Canada, and uh, let's say for whatever reason, the CEO of Air Canada uh, doesn't want uh, you know, people who support the People's Party of Canada working for them and they terminate someone. That person could right now would not be able to rely on the Canadian Human Rights Act, although they may have recourse under other um, legislation about whether that would be just grounds for termination. Um, like for example, the Canada Labor Code. Yeah, okay. So, um, for for the for the private, it's clear because the Human Rights uh, Act uh, exists to cover discrimination in the private sector. The Charter uh, only applies to the actions of of public bodies. Although, I mean, isn't it fair to say that the Human Rights uh, Act also provides additional tools and remedies even for those working in the public sector? So uh, you can go to a Human Rights Commission, for example, which might be a little bit easier in terms of, of getting uh, an issue resolved than needing to go to court, which you know for, for, for the charter, you have to go to court. For the Human Rights uh, Act, you can go to a Human Rights Commission. Yeah, without a doubt, uh, Garnet, if I'm representing a federal public service employee and I've represented hundreds over the years, uh, if, if there's a case, an issue of discrimination, you know, theoretically, they could rely on the charter you know, for sex discrimination or whatnot. But I, if I, you know, ideally I'd like to rely on the Canadian Rights Act because then I can go to an administrative tribunal, um, usually an expert tribunal who's dealing with cases like that all the time, like the Canadian Rights Tribunal or the Federal Public Sector Labor Relations Board. Uh, but, but I would flag actually for that, that little gap where they don't have political opinion uh, or belief in the um, Canadian Rights Act, you can grieve a breach of the charter. So that, that case I was mentioning, there, uh, I forget her, uh, Jean Dron, I think was her last name. Um, she, she was able to grieve a breach of the charter and go to the federal public sector labor relations board and was supported by her union and that. Yeah. So it's, it's very complicated, like the yeah. jurisdictional issues in federal public service employment. And that's why I, I think you weren't sort of thrilled with my comment. And I was kind of like, ah, I guess, you know, you could change the act if you want. I, I'm not really opposed to your amendment. I was just, I just don't think it's going to change a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, f- f- fair enough. And look, this is this is part of the point of the podcast is to bring people on who I disagree and have a, you know, and, and you know, fo- folks for for context, uh, Paul has been uh, quite vocal on the issue of Canadian children uh, detained in Syria, which is the issue we covered on last week's episode. And uh, we've certainly agreed on a lot of things and disagreed on some. And that's uh, um, and that's the great thing about about, you know, being collegial in politics is that you can you can work together where you where you agree. But, but your, your comment essentially in this bill was um, you said it's a bit of a shrug because you don't see it as uh, necessarily having having that much of an impact in terms of, of new coverage or new protection. Yeah, that, that would sort of summarize my position, Garnet, is I yeah. just I don't see like in private industry, you know, or like, let's say, um, uh, Canada Post not delivering your mail because you're a member of whatever the NDP or something. We're just we're not really seeing those kinds of cases. Yep. Um, and uh, so I just I think there's a lot of other maybe we'll get to it later in the podcast. I think there's a lot of other things in the Cayman Rights Act absolutely that do need updating. And and I'm glad that a member of Parliament is paying a bit of attention to Cayman Rights Act because I think unfortunately it's sort of sat in the drawer for so long and, and people don't look at it very much unless they want to, they have a pet issue that they want to add uh, for the prohibited grounds as you know, but yeah, yeah. someone who practices it all the time, I'd like to see other changes other than this one. Yeah. And we'll try to, we'll try to come back to that uh, for sure. Um, maybe Dwight, we'll go to you now. Uh, what's uh, uh, what was your response to, to two, five, seven. And um, you know, what do you think the impacts of it uh, will be or could be if it were passed into law adding, Political uh, political belief and activity as prohibited grounds of discrimination. Well, in general terms, it struck me as a constructive, logical next step in terms of an addition, and that's not to say there might not other be other good additions um, to the Canadian Human Rights Act, but this certainly seemed like a constructive addition. It is one present in a number of provincial human rights codes, so for which there is protection at the provincial level. Uh, where there's provincial jurisdiction. And whether it's uh, utilized frequently or not, I mean, if, if it doesn't get utilized a lot, I mean, that's a good thing in a sense and says that there aren't the issues there, but that it be available um, in the event that there are issues struck me as constructive. Now, Paul's uh, right on point that uh, um, the shift in the context of the federal government is more limited. Uh, because the charter does have application there. Um, however, uh, it's also the case that uh, that there are different remedial options and different processes available under the Canadian Human Rights Act, rather than having to take a charter claim. Um, and uh, this uh, amendment won't apply just to employment, but also to delivery of services. Um, and that's important as well, especially when we hit the private sector. Um, the federally regulated private sector, and we talk about things like banks, um, uh, other important services like that, that are uh, vital in people's lives, um, and uh, that there not be a denial of services for some reason based upon political belief or activity. Uh, that's probably an important protection to have in the context of, uh, of a federal human rights statute like the, the Canadian Human Rights Act, especially when it is building upon the example of uh, of a number of provincial human rights codes. So uh, that would be in general terms my action that it's a constructive addition. Um, whether it makes uh, a difference in a vast number of cases, um, that would remain to be seen. Uh, but we might not be hearing all of the complaints right now uh, if people don't have a, a legal mechanism by which uh, they can raise a complaint. 
and uh, if it turns out there aren't a lot of complaints, um, then that's that's fortunate. Um, but we wouldn't start taking out other grounds from the uh, the Canadian Human Rights Act just because some other human rights issues um, have seen advances compared to decades in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank thank you for those points. Could you just develop the issue of of uh, banking a little bit? I mean. Um, people have the credit union alternative, but when it comes to, to major banks, if you're, if you're going that route, um, we have a relatively limited number of banks uh, in, in this country. And if, if uh, let's say somebody's involved in political activity, that's, uh, that's deeply contrary to the interests of banks as a group, or, or uh, that's controversial enough that it, it spawns a sort of campaign for them, them or their, their, uh, their, their businesses or activities to be sort of not able to receive banking services. I mean, it's um, it would be very hard to live today uh, and exist in the modern economy without uh, access to banking services. And yet um, the implication of what you're saying is that someone could face um, discrimination or targeting on the basis of their political views or, or some other reason not covered uh, not covered in the in the act that could lead to them being denied banking services. Uh, that's right. I mean, uh, I mean legally, uh, a bank could do that today, um, and there, there wouldn't be an easy remedy for somebody. And if, uh, if for example, someone were conducting some kind of political campaign um, uh, in respect of banking specifically, um, and uh, that political activity ran afoul of, uh, of banks' interests, um, there would be the possibility that, uh, that banks could end up to choosing not to deal with that person, something along those lines, um, this kind of amendment would provide protection against. Uh, there's been quite a bit of discussion in the United States around financial services and uh, issues on their availability to people of all, uh, of all political perspectives and uh, uh, political activity. And uh, that, that does present a serious issue. Um, and uh, the idea that, uh, that people for legal political activities or legal political beliefs um, would face an issue um, does seem very problematic. Um, and uh, in the context particularly of a limited banking sector in Canada in terms of the, the number of large banks, um, there, there could be uh, serious issues for somebody were, uh, were they to, to face a, a situation where banks took the view that they were more trouble than it was worth in a sense. Um, that, that sort of uh, financial death isn't, a, isn't a, a good prospect for anyone to face. Um, on any prohibited ground of discrimination. Um, uh, and political activity, frankly, is one where there's more likelihood that banks would have an interest in discriminating uh, as opposed to ones where um, they, uh, they uh, stand to benefit from a business perspective on uh, irrespective of most other grounds of discrimination. And we do still see, unfortunately, instances arise of uh, of uh, people having to raise issues concerning banks and other grounds of discrimination. Um, so why not have it on uh, a protection based on political belief or activity in that important context? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for that. Uh, you know, I think very good perspective. Uh, Bruce, uh, what is your kind of take on this bill and, and how does this fit with some of the things you're observing and commenting on in terms of trends in human rights? Right, well, this is a thing that I support, and I, I'm glad to see your bill. 
I think it's a very good idea, but some people are surprised that I feel that way about it. A lot of my classical liberal colleagues are generally against piling on yet another requirement, ground, rule, regulation, and I tend to agree with them about that. And so if we had a perfect world in which our businesses were small businesses and we had actual marketplaces without protectionism in, in them, I would prefer a world in which we did not have a human rights code so that people would be free to decide who their customers would be and customers would be free to decide who they wanted to give their business to. But that's not the real world we live in. And since there are an awful lot, especially in the federal sector, there are an awful lot of protected sectors of the economy. We've been talking about some, airlines, banking, and so on. And the businesses in the federal uh, areas tend to be bigger generally than in the provincial. A lot of the small businesses are provincial businesses. They don't operate from coast to coast. And so I think it's a very good idea. It's necessary because you don't want those big businesses deciding what the what 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 the tolerable political beliefs of the day are. Uh, I think the example of banks is an excellent one. Canada Post as well. There was an incident, I think, a little while ago. Uh, Canada Post raising the question of whether or not it was required to to deliver the pamphlets of a group that somebody or other said was offensive. Well, this kind of provision would would basically signal that Canada Post must deliver everything, including those things they find politically offensive. And that would be a very good thing. Uh, in a way, when we get to banking, in a way, this would help to put a halt on all of those developments, either real or imaginary, heading down the road of social credit systems. There's a lot of concern in this country that we are going to slip into a, to a social credit system. And the freezing of the bank accounts following the convoy did not help that at all. And the idea of social credit scoring is just that, 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 that somebody like a bank would be evaluating your political correctness, essentially, whether or not your behavior and your attitudes and your social, your social media postings were a, would, would you know, contain appropriate messages. That's all gets down to political belief. And so this kind of provision in the Human Rights Code would, would help steer us in the opposite direction, away from the idea that it is the proper um, realm of government and realm of big business to be supervising what people think in political terms and otherwise. And so I, so I, I, I hope it works. Mm -hmm. Bruce, just to, to, to stay with you for a minute, I mean, I think you're kind of articulating a, a tension um, that a lot of sort of classically liberal or, or libertarian people kind of grapple with, which is on the one hand, you want the state to leave individuals and businesses alone to do their thing. But on the other hand, recognizing the world as it is with um, concentrations of, of power and a lot of those concentrations of power um, involving a certain dependency on the state, right? And, and people have written about this sort of emerging world of, of woke capitalism in which uh, government exercises subtle pressure on big corporations to kind of be the purveyors of, of certain kinds of political and social ideas. 
um, what, what you're what you're arguing essentially is that uh, those with a libertarian or classic liberal perspective have to uh, look for real world solutions to that um, to that overbearing concentration of power, and some of that actually requires government intervention to reset the balance towards greater freedom. Exactly so, and, and, and unfortunately so, right? But so if, if you are imagining a world in which we actually have a more or less free marketplace, then, you know, these criticisms are valid, but that's not what we have. We have a whole lot of interference in our economy and in our social lives from governments, from big business, and as you say, it is often the combination of government and big business cooperating together so as to endorse a certain kind of view. I mean, woke capitalism is a great term for it. There are, are, are all kinds of larger corporate operations now that are endorsing a certain kind of attitude. There are not very many large corporations that I know of, for example, who have not endorsed some, some version of corporate social responsibility you know, environmental sustainability or, or, or the like. And that's a political view. They're all political views. And so if you are a person trying to get service from those corporations, or for that matter, if you are an employee of them or trying to be hired by them, and you don't agree with those attitudes, does that mean you're shut out of the economy or at least of that sector of the economy? This, this kind of provision in the real world will prevent that sort of monolithic political view from being enforced both by government and by the larger corporate interests that are cooperating with government in trying to achieve that end. Okay, so we've got three very distinct perspectives, I think, and, and we're, we're off to a great start in terms of this, this conversation. Um, Paul, I wonder what your reaction is to arguments, you know, I think very different arguments, but, but uh, from from Dwight and Bruce, but both suggesting, you know, I, I guess Dw Dwight's point is, if a bill like this is relatively low impact, I mean, so what? It should still be in there. And if there's not that many cases, that's, you know, that's that's great. But we we might not know until we we put it in there. Uh, Bruce's point that uh, this this is relating to actually a a larger phenomenon, which is uh, more and more uh, kind of. Uh, large corporations taking substantive positions on particular values or ideas that that can lead to pressure on customers and employees what's what's your sort of reaction to those those two comments well i think dwight makes a great point that there's you know there, there's no real harm and if there's not that many cases then maybe maybe that's a good thing um i don't um i don't think the lack of a provision uh, is like holding back this big uh, um, wave of cases that that isn't out there. I, I took a look today to see how many cases there are in the provinces that have um, political be belief and activity. Uh, and in fairness to your position, Garnet, actually seven of the 10 provinces do have political belief in their human rights legislation. But there's very, very few recent cases on that. It, it kind of go, it actually goes way back to the reason why we had political belief in our in, in some of the human rights statutes was because uh, patronage was so rife, um, you know, that whichever government was in power, you know, different companies would file, fire all the liberals if the conservatives were in power and, and hire a bunch of, uh, you know, people who had supported the conservatives because they want to get the government contract to clean the roads or whatever, right? 
Um, so that's, that's why we had those provisions in some of those provinces, but fortunately those kinds of sort of crass patronage is, is kind of left us. So there, there really just isn't that, that many cases out there, but that said, you know, I think, I mean, I think it is the idea, like, let's say, imagine, um, you know, someone donates to, uh, Palestine or whatever. Uh, some Palestinian cause and a bank freezes their accounts. And that's actually not a theoretical thing. There are a few cases out there like that. Um, and, and, you know, Dwight makes a good point that if, you know, we only have a handful of banks and if they all kind of freeze you out, then that's an issue. I, I had one client actually who had that problem for quite some time, hmm. um, who, who was frozen out by all banks because he was perceived to be associated with a certain group. Hmm. But, you know, on the other hand, I guess you would say, well, what about banks? Now, I know the Proud Boys are now uh, uh, a listed, uh, designated group as a terrorist group, but prior to that, they were not. Yeah. Um, or maybe like a group like Sons of Odin, and the Sons of Odin want to create their own bank account, right, uh, for their club. Maybe they do. They probably do have them. And if banks kind of start saying, well, look, we don't want to do, we don't want to do business with guys who are white supremacists, well, they would be able to rely on that provision. Um, to, yeah, yeah. to ledge discrimination. I'm, I'm not trying to go down the, the end road, the Nazi road, uh, yeah. but, but, you know, we, we have to recognize the reality is we do have uh, some pretty extreme elements in our country right now that have grown in, in numbers and, and virulence, I would suggest over the last number of you know, years. And it could well be that some banks don't want to do business with some of those people and they could come forward and say, look, that's my political opinion. And you're, you don't want to do business with me because of my political opinion. So I don't know. I just, yeah. it's, uh, I think there's a lot of considerations there, Garnet, to be quite honest. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a skeptical of sort of the invocation of Godwin's law as, as, as anyone, right? Uh, like in the sense that like immediately jumping to what about Nazis kind of, it kind of ignores the fact. Yeah, that's why I didn't but, want to but, go there. But but, but we do have groups said, like you know, Sons of Odin and Proud I think, et cetera. I, I think we do need to try to answer that question, which is what, what is the case where, um, people have hateful views and and claim those are political views. Now, now my response to that, uh, with in the context of of the bill, has been: uh, first of all, my bill doesn't change hate speech laws. It doesn't change the laws on um, on uh, ideologically motivated hate. It doesn't change the Terrorism Act at all. So, you know, if if uh, if something is a designated terrorist group, uh, then you know, it shouldn't, you know, then, then obviously they're, they're not subject to, to any kinds of protections, just, just as they're not subject to the normal protections around freedom of association and, and this sort of thing. Right. So uh, that, that is in a separate legal category. And um, I think generally speaking, we want to have um, the state and security agencies policing these kinds of designations. We don't, we don't really want to leave it up to the banks to say who is and is not a, um, a terrorist group. We want that to be made by by the government, by experts, and we want people who are engaged in lawful political speech to to have to have protections. I guess, like the other thing that I've said is, um, in many cases, those with hateful views um, could legitimately be barred from employment. For instance, in on the basis of a, a bona fide occupational qualification, right? So, uh, if somebody you know, if somebody votes for a party you don't like, you shouldn't be able to fire them for it. Uh, but if somebody is has a has a, a worldview that's going to lead them to treat certain customers badly, um, then you have a legitimate basis for uh, for excluding them. Uh, I mean, I wonder um, what Bruce uh, thinks about that. 
Yeah, well, Bruce. So, yeah, so that's a very good question. And so part of my part of my embrace of this idea might not be what you have in mind, Garnet, because because one of the objections to this is if you know it either really works or it really doesn't work. If it doesn't work, if it's minor, if it just sits there as as Dwight Dwight mentioned, then okay, fine. But if it really works and covers all you know all kinds of views, it makes people impossible to to dismiss or to to avoid, then you're going to create a real problem for the human rights regime. And people say, well, we can't have that. And I say, well, hold on, wait a minute. That might be a good thing. For those people who are not inclined towards the human rights regimes in the first place, to put something in place that kind of shows it doesn't work, it's unworkable is the is is one of the complaints it doesn't work if it's as wide as you think if it applies to as many things as you imagine if it applies not just to partisan politics but also to ideology to your attitude towards people if it encompasses that kind of thing then it will prevent distinguishing between people on all kinds of grounds and might make them ungovernable if, if you're running a business possible I don't think it's been interpreted that broadly in the provinces that have it, to be fair. But if it was, then you know it might it might become unworkable. Well, for my money, that's not a bad thing, because I think that the human rights regimes, not so much the federal one, but more particularly in the provinces and particularly the Ontario one, have become unwieldy and 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 deserving of serious reform if not uh, not being wiped out and starting again so i'm not unhappy with the prospect that if this does work in the way that it might in its broadest sense it might cause difficulty within the idea of the human rights regime itself bruce can you can you just explain that a, a little bit more because that's i mean it, right yeah sure so, so well, let's. I mean, the, the, as I say, the the the. I think the case for in the federal um, realm is actually the strongest case around, as I mentioned earlier, because of the nature of the federal uh, economic sectors, the nature yeah. of the businesses that exist there. But let's just take theoretically a provincial situation, a provincial situation where the human rights codes applies to all the small businesses businesses around. And for those people who think that small businesses should be entitled to decide for themselves who they hire, who they fire, who they serve, who's allowed on the property, all these kinds of things. You know, the, 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 the small time closely held bakery who does not want to bake the cake for the gay wedding. There are those of us who think, look, if you've actually got a free marketplace, then the market will sort it out. If there's if there's a business like a the bakery that does not want to serve those groups of people, well, then there's going to be another bakery down the street that's much smarter than they are, who will take in those customers and 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 be more competitive. So, for those of us who believe that, we would like to see no more human rights code. But that's not on the table. What is on the table is protecting political belief. And if it really, really works, 
that it might become so unwieldy so as to produce the result that we really want, which is to undermine the whole damn thing. All right. That's, I mean, that's, that's an interesting perspective. It is, it is certainly different from where I'm going with this, which is to envision that, um, that this would be, um, this would provide some, some, you know, measure protection. That, 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 that really applies to the provincial versions, not the federal one. I think the case for the federal version of this is a much, is a much more persuasive one actually, and a much more practical one than it is in the provincial uh, realm. Dwight, do you want to weigh in on, on, on any of this in terms of the question about, uh, um, you know, practical impacts or uh, the issues that we've raised about um, kind of how this would apply to, to those with views that are, that are so far outside the mainstream uh, or, or for hate groups and so forth? Sure. Uh, I guess I'd say I feel closer to uh, um, the Bruce of earlier in the podcast than the Bruce of later in the podcast, if I can put it that way, um, because the idea that um, uh, libertarians or classical liberals could support human rights codes as offering protections in some instances where that's necessary because of the, uh, the power of corporations, um, I thought that was a, a very interesting discussion. Um, the idea that this is going to bring down human rights regimes, uh, I, I don't see it as needing to lead in that direction, uh, nor see that, nor do I see that as a desirable result to pursue. Um, in fact, I, I think that there can be quite a, a reasonable interpretation given to political belief or activity. I've not been through all of the jurisprudence of the uh, the provincial systems, and uh, I appreciate the uh, the perspective that Paul brought in terms of how that provision first got in there around party patronage. Um, I, I would think that today uh, there would be a different reason for including political belief or activity, simply recognizing that while it's not an immutable ground, um, it is one that people shouldn't reasonably have to uh, modify in a similar way as with a number of the other grounds in, uh, uh, in the, uh, the human rights system. And um, courts and tribunals can offer interpretation to the scope of political belief or activity that doesn't need to tend in the direction of every ideology being protected um, uh, down the, uh, the road of Nazis in a sense, um, but uh, at the same time offer protection to, uh, to legal positions um, uh, and allow for our security agencies um, to, in certain instances, designate, uh, designate groups and for that to be done by uh, appropriate security agencies rather than by banks directly, um, those sorts of choices. So I, I think there can be a, uh, a middle path of sorts uh, that works well with this, uh, this system um, uh, and under which this kind of provision can offer some good additional protections without having to go down the road of all of the possible consequences one could imagine, but it's good to think about that and uh, to, to think about how there can be um, uh, restraints developed within what this protection offers, um, which uh, of course the tribunals and courts can adopt um, uh, uh, down the road. So I think that's an important discussion to have. Uh, Paul, in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of scope, um... I'm curious for your thoughts on sort of a, a comparison, a, a comparison between uh, political beliefs and religious beliefs. 
because the, the code already protects religious belief. Mm-hmm. And you can't have cases where someone says, well, my religious belief is, is, is X, you know, I, and, and, and I'm the only one who holds it, but it's a religious belief and you can't tell me otherwise. Right. So, so you, you can't imagine the kind of, um, you know, maximal use of a criteria uh, in, in some of the existing cases and, and uh, religious beliefs are not immutable. And, um, you know, it, it seems uh, for some people that po- political views hold the same role in their life that uh, religion might have uh, for, for others or, or in ages past. And, um, and I would argue that, that that's a bit of a problem in that illustri- and that, that has created some of, the, um, some of the tensions we see in our politics. But, but regardless, it seems to be something that's out there. Um, and and, and the, 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 the institutions have already had to grapple with giving some definition to the, the, the parameters of religious belief and how to define religious belief and how to measure someone's sincerity in a religious belief. Um, do you think, do you think that's, uh, that process that has already worked its way out uh, is sort of applicable on the political side? What are the sort of similarities and differences between protection for religious belief and protection for political belief? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, to be honest, I kind of think religion and our human rights statutes for, you know, private sector is a little bit anachronistic as well. You know, it goes back to the day, like when my parents were married, I don't, my, they were, my grand, my grand, my mother was a Catholic and my father was a Protestant and uh, everyone on my mother's side wouldn't step foot in the church or go to the reception. And my father wouldn't allow a Catholic in his house. My grandfather wouldn't allow a Catholic in his house anyway. That's, that's how pernicious um, you know, feelings towards people of different religions were back in the day. Um, but we don't really have that. Uh, I'd, I'd like to think for the most part, at least in Christian denominations anymore, although we have seen it, uh, Muslims, unfortunately face that today. Um, and when we get into, um, sincerity of belief and so forth, if you believe in that, in, in your religion, it, it usually isn't a very high threshold, as you pointed out. We kind of draw a little bit from the charter jurisprudence around freedom of religion when the government tries to um, uh, bring in legislation one way or another that impacts on um, religion. Um, I can tell you, in terms of our recent sort of... Um, you know, the, the elephant in the room here around COVID uh, uh, vaccine mandates. Um, I've been consulted by a number of people on um, religious belief and whether, you know, their employer terminating them or suspending them because of the their religious belief around COVID uh, vaccines, whether they could actually make a, a case on that. And I probably gave advice to... I don't know, 40 or 50 people. And of those, I think only two had a legitimate case. Um, and a legitimate case, meaning that they, they were able to demonstrate that it was a sincere religious belief. Um, and actually I was successful in one of those cases, got the person, their job back. I was able to persuade the, the individual. But a lot, I, I think like in religion nowadays, it's usually in the context of religious harassment, usually of people who are also minorities, racialized uh, minority comp- uh, relative to religion. And I just, I don't... Um, I'm not sure if the test would really come into play very much on on political belief. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. You're you're kind of making um, um, I don't want to pigeonhole anyone, but you're, you're kind of making a bit of a, a libertarian, potentially implied libertarian that, that like, you know, essentially society is moving in in a direction with respect to tolerance and inclusion, 
uh, where at a certain point the criteria becomes less necessary. I guess the counter is like, well, it's not doing any harm being being on the books. Um, I think people would argue that there that there still are a lot of very live instances of of religious discrimination. I mean, for what it's worth, as a, as a politician who's open about about uh, my own uh, Catholic faith, I I get I get far more quote unquote harassment online for the fact that I'm a person of faith than I do about any other personal characteristic, right? So I do I, I do think we're more likely to see discrimination or harassment on the basis of characteristics that are seen as not immutable, right? Like if your religion and your politics are things you that are deep, deeply personal to you, but they're things you choose, right? So it it's sort of I think to a lot of people it feels um, like it's more okay to treat someone badly on the basis of those things rather than to treat someone badly on the basis of uh, of of race or or gender or sexual orientation. Um, so I you know I I don't know that I agree that it's anachronistic. I mean I, I do see the point you're making that like that the the way religion is is treated interpersonally has changed um but it might be that we still see more instances of that discrimination than we do of of other forms no you're probably right you're probably right Garnet. i i probably overstated the case i think you're i think you make some good points there um does Can anyone bruce do you want yeah, yeah please so i mean yeah i don't i don't know which one of you is correct about whether or not the religious discrimination is less pernicious now than it, than it was, but but Garnet, the proposal you're bringing forward, I think, is is timely because, frankly, the most pernicious kind of discrimination that's developing now is, in fact, political. Especially if you draw political in a is in a wide way, in the widest way, in the ideological sense so as to encompass what Paul referred to as the elephant in the room, which is vaccine mandates and all the other COVID stuff. Now, for my money, I would like to see a provision that includes all of that. Now, I would have liked to have seen your proposal to be a little bit wider, like it says political, I would have included ideological or whatever was necessary to include those kinds of inclinations. But what's happening during COVID is that people's attitudes towards what previously were medical questions have become political questions. And you can see a divide politically between portions of the population that believe one thing and believe the other thing. It is a way in which people have divided themselves in very large groups. And, you know, if you go into, I'll bet there's a probably a pretty good correlation. If you go into, Ontario's just dropped its mask mandates. If you go into a store tomorrow and you take a survey of the people who are still wearing masks, I'll bet that a high proportion of those people would lean left. It just so happens that there's correlation between political belief and attitudes towards masking and, and vaccine mandates and so on. It has become a political matter, not just a medical scientific one. And so if this kind of provision is to be serious, and to be sufficiently broad, it should in fact protect people from having to take a vaccine that they do not want. That would be my take, if mm -hmm. it's successful. Yeah, so um, here would be my take on it. I'm curious for your, your response. First of all, personally, I do not believe that people should be fired from their job um, because of a personal vaccine 
decision. I've right. I've said that publicly. Now that that said, in terms of the the application to Bill C two five seven, like I know some people have posted in response, like that they want to see explicit inclusion of prohibit prohibition of discrimination on the basis of, of of medical status. And my response is, hey, this is this is a private member's bill. I think right. it's ambitious enough. We you know you kind of do one thing at a time, right? So of course, of um, course sure. yeah. but. Um, yeah, I think your point is interesting, which is to what extent are someone's views about um, COVID response measures, uh, political views? I think the difference would be that, okay, if, if I'm an employee and I go out and post on my social media that I disagree with vaccine mandates and that I get fired as a result of posting my views about a policy decision, right. that would, I think, clearly be someone getting fired because of their political views. Me too. That is different. That yeah. is different from someone being told you have to um, wear a mask, um, put on the uniform, stand behind plexiglass, get vaccinated, whatever at work. Um, because that, well, well perhaps in that particular but, but, case, that's that's yeah. that's about protocols for what's required at work. And and again, I don't agree with sure. people being fired because of their because sure. of their their vaccine status. But I but I think that is like what an employer requires as, as part of um, what they would right. define as health and safety at work is different from somebody having a political point of view that they're, that they're expressing outside of the workplace. Right, that's a fair distinction, but this brings, us, brings me back to where I started, right? So in an ideal world, I agree that employers, especially small businesses, should be entitled to, to decide for themselves what their workplace policies are. Yeah, whether they hire homosexuals or not, that should be up to the individual business. Well, but, That's your position, well, isn't it, Bruce? Uh, if you're going to be consistent and say that small businesses have the right to make decisions about your employees' political views, then they should have the right to make all kinds of decisions. And the market will work that out if you had a free market. But In the, in the same so, way for minimum on, wages, on, we shouldn't have on, minimum let's wages let's also. The track. the track is the, the question of the COVID policies. And what I'm suggesting is that in an ideal world with a free market, you would say to employers, look, it's your, it's, it's your work a place of work. You decide what policies your employees should follow with respect to vaccination and masks and social distancing and as the case may be. But and, the point and that's is- that's how we ended up with black people working sorry, on sorry, 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 yeah. uh, Paul, Paul, But that's not I'll, what we have. What I'll, we have I'll, is- I'll, I'll we, go to you next, we, but yeah, just- We have response. a whole lot, we have a whole lot of, of concentrated market power in protected industries, very large businesses who are making, in, in essence, political decisions in cooperation with government. And in that kind of scenario, I don't think it's nearly as easy to say that, well, it's a place of employment. You know, the, the employers can do what they want. I don't think that that, that follows. Yeah. I, you know, and, and I think I think we could we could have a broader conversation about sort of the appropriateness of human rights codes. And I mean, for, for what it's worth, worth, I mean, Bruce, I, I don't agree with you. Like I, I, I do support having legal structures in place that, that protect against discrimination. I, I think your point, and, and, and I'll, I'll go to Paul now for, for your response, but I, I guess your point, Bruce, would be that like in, in, a, in a perfect market, a, a small business that discriminated against people on the basis of you know, race or sexual orientation or something like that, they would, they would just be, they would go be out savaged by the market. They would they, go they out would, of business. They'd you know, be they're... foolish, utterly, yeah. utterly foolish and stupid. And, and they, they, they would and should go out of business. That's the way it's supposed to work. Paul, what's your, what's your response to that? And then I'll, 
I have another question I wanted to ask Dwight about uh, about the impact of this in Indigenous communities. Dwight, Dwight doesn't want to touch that one. Oh. <laughs> Well, well the market to... the market did manage. That's why, you know, uh, black people couldn't work in nursing. Uh, they the only jobs that they could get with halfway pay was uh, uh, as train conductors for for almost a century in this country. Um, and that was the market. The market dictated that that they, that people uh, who happened to be black would live as an underclass in our country. And unfortunately, the market didn't solve that. And I think that uh, a lot could be said that human rights legislation, which started being introduced in the, in the mid 60s to the late 70s, including the Human Rights Act in 76, played a significant role in um, opening up workplaces, prohibiting those kinds of practices, and um, seeing people of different backgrounds, uh, races, ethnicities, even religions perhaps, uh, getting into new positions in employment where it did truly become ridiculous to think that well, just because someone's of a certain color, they can or can't do a certain job. Um, that's how we broke down discrimination in this country. And I think, uh, yeah, I suppose if we dropped the, dropped the laws now and said, oh, well, you know, any business that doesn't uh, serve uh, gay people or black people would just go out of business because the market would dictate. That's easy to say now after all the hard work of uh, human rights statutes over the last uh, several decades. I, I, actually don't, I actually don't have a big problem with that analysis. I don't. I don't think that there was necessarily a time when it wasn't appropriate but my my case i'm making now is that that's not the case now especially but i would like to make a distinction though between philosophically between the small business situation where you're running your own store you're in there every day you talk to your employees between the small business and the large big huge corporations that are there they don't operate in the same way at all now i i i acknowledge that it's difficult to define where the dividing line between those two kinds of businesses are. Sure, but but there is a there is a difference between the closely held business, uh, where you've got a like a sole proprietor, for example, who has a who has a, a you know a set of premises. In, in in today's world, in those situations where you have a free marketplace, for my money, there's no reason to tell that person what to do. Different story with the large especially federally regulated corporations that are operating from coast to coast they're different animals altogether um i want to i want to make sure we get a few other points related to this this discussion and and i think i think you know the the exchange we just had was 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 quite interesting i do i do think it's like it's interesting to me how um um many people would say with respect to issues like uh, racial discrimination, that even if it's unlikely to hap have happened today, it's still important that those prohibitions be clearly in uh, in the act as a message and and because of the role they played historically. Um, one more thing for me though on that. But I, 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 was, I was just gonna say, I mean, I think I think it's arguably a similar principle applies in the case of political discrimination, where um, where it's it's worth being in the code, even if it's a small number of cases. Okay, Bruce, last word on this topic, and then I want to ask okay. about Aboriginal. So, but haven't we Aboriginal. haven't we grown up enough as a society now to say that? Well, you know, sometimes it might be okay. Let's so let's say you let's say you run a Chinese restaurant, and you want Chinese people working there. I mean, aren't we mature enough to say, okay, sure? I mean, fine. If you if you if you want to have a Jewish law firm, aren't you allowed to just hire Jewish people? I mean, there are going to be some situations in which people have preferences, and they're real preferences, and those preferences ought to be entertained. 
I, uh, I think if we go down that, that road, we'll probably be here for another, another couple hours, but I, I invite people to Bruce, Bruce, do you have a Twitter? Do you guys have Twitter accounts, by the way, I can tell people to sure. share their Yeah. I'm at uh, party Bruce. Okay. Uh, I know Paul, you're at champ law or something. Is that it? Yeah. Paul champ law, Paul champ law. And then Dwight, you're on Twitter as well. Yes. I'm at Dwight Newman law. Dwight Newman Law. Okay, so so people who agree or disagree with Bruce or Paul or Dwight can uh, uh, can weigh in on Twitter. But I, I wanted to just make sure we get a couple other other points in here. Uh, Dwight, you've done a lot of work, I understand, on on Indigenous law. Um, in, in what sense does the um, does the human uh, does the Human Rights Act apply to uh, Indigenous nations, and what would be the application of this amendment possibly in Indigenous communities? Okay, yeah, so I, I do work on Indigenous rights law and Aboriginal law, and I'd prefer to use the term Indigenous law a little bit differently to refer to the um, laws of Indigenous nations themselves, which I don't tend to, to work on. Um, but I, I guess in terms of that question, I think that's an important one because of the expansion of the human, Canadian Human Rights Act a number of years back now under the, the Harper government to apply to First Nations band councils. And so that would be another context in which there would end up being an application of this provision that uh, that we probably should touch upon. And uh, um, there would then be a protection um, uh, against uh, discrimination by band councils on the basis of um, political belief or activity. And uh, unfortunately, there probably are some instances where, where that protection might be significant. Um, uh, around issues like on reserve housing, or um, there certainly there certainly has been litigation around issues of participation in uh, First Nations election processes and some of the rules there um, over the years. And the the federal court has um, a pretty um, active uh, judicial review operation going on on these issues. So I, I guess I'd just say that is an additional context in which uh, we would see application of any uh, element added in, such as through this private member's bill. Um, but that's that relates to a broader discussion then about uh, uh, the application of the Canadian Human Rights Act in that context. And um, uh, the, uh, um, the uh, pertinent agencies have done a lot of work on that as to what are the sensitive applications of the Canadian Human Rights Act that is meant to apply, um, but where there are other issues at stake as well around uh, um, collective dimensions of uh, Indigenous rights and so forth. So um, it's it's probably an important protection there as well, just as in these uh, these other contexts. And that's one uh, uh, that's worth uh, um, more thought and investigation. Um, uh, so uh, that would be my initial comment on it. Um, and it's certainly something to, to look further at and consider further. Mm -hmm. And then uh, maybe Dwight, just sticking with you and then we'll go, we'll go back around the horn, but um... Another possible area of application would be social media companies. Um, would they be would they be covered as part of the federally regulated private sector? And um, could you see complaints from users, for instance, that they were facing discrimination on the basis of um, of political belief? Yeah, I mean that's a, a complex context. I guess some would indeed be under uh, federal jurisdiction and would be a. Uh, um, subject then to the uh, the application of the Canadian Human Rights Act, and were they to discriminate on the basis of political belief or activity, um, there would be an application there. Obviously, that's an area where there's been some discussion around um, uh, 
whether uh, whether particular social media companies um, are limiting uh, some people from uh, from participating in discourse in, in ways that are problematic and uh, there could be uh, complaints taken there. So um, that's another uh, context in which there, there could be that discussion. All of this, uh, to be clear though, it is applying in the context of uh, at the federal level, uh, what would tend to be very large corporations. And uh, um, uh, there are some instances where, uh, where um, human rights statutes strike complicated balances because of rights of others and so forth. Uh, and I, I would just mention, for example, something like uh, the fact that a lot of provincial human rights statutes, um, if someone is renting out apartments as a uh, company renting out apartments, they're fully subject to the human rights statute. If someone is renting a, a room in their own home, um, they are not subject to the statute in the and its application, and that's because you're balancing different uh, different interests and different rights that uh, that people have. Um, and uh, there are complicated conversations we're having as a society on a lot of different issues, um, but it's really important symbolically to see reflected in our human rights statutes. Um, uh, the kinds of protections that that have been in those, and as Paula's mentioned, those have played a key role in stamping out a lot of discrimination. But it's probably really important that those uh, protections continue to be there, including on grounds like religion that was raised earlier, um, but including also other areas identified as uh, giving rise to uh, discrimination based on um, immutable or um, uh, grounds or grounds that shouldn't have to be modified and political belief and activity is something pretty central um, to uh, to individuals dignity and individuals identity and um, individuals um, uh, participatory rights in society in a way that it probably merits this kind of protection in the various different contexts we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to underline that, yeah, there's a complexity to the process of determinations and interpretations and even the example you gave of, you know, renting a property versus renting a room in your own house. And I think a lot of people intuitively can understand the distinction there where, where one is a much more kind of intimate setting. So a person should be able to exercise a bit more personal discretion in that, in that context. But it's, um, um, I guess the point I would make is that uh, given that we already have a whole body of law around uh, striking this kind of balance that adding an additional criteria isn't, uh, you know, it's not overcomplicating the process. It's, it's simply adding an additional criteria um, that fits into an, an existing and building uh, body of, of interpretation. Um, Indeed. Paul, and yeah, yeah, if I can just add, I mean, yeah. I think we have a, a mostly good body of, uh, of, um, of institutions and uh, and statutes, there there's always room for different kinds of improvements. Um, but uh, as you say, this is just about adding one ground into that existing framework uh, that can find ways to uh, to deal with that um, in uh, conscientious and uh, and appropriate ways. So, Paul, feel feel free to react to any of that. But I also wanted to ask you to to feed in your additional suggestions. If, if we were having this conversation before I had tabled a bill and I had said I was open to doing anything to change uh, the Canadian Human Rights Act, uh, what would your, your wish list be on that front? Yeah, I'll just, I'll close with two points, Garnet. Uh, number one is uh, you and Dwight have persuaded me actually that this is, a, I think, a good provision to add. 
um, Dwight uh, flagging about uh, that bands uh, are covered, which I'm very aware of that the band uh, First Nations bands are covered by the Cayman Rights Act. And in fact, there, there is political discrimination that occurs uh, in bands uh, in you know, with respect to services, et cetera, by who's in or out with the particular band council. I've, I've dealt with those issues, including employment as well. Um, I've dealt with those issues, just unfortunately not through the, the lens of the CHRA, which I think would have been a helpful tool in those kinds of uh, situations. So I, I think I'm, I'm persuaded uh, on that example alone. Uh, number two, what I was going to say, Garnet, is some of the things I was saying to you uh, on Twitter is that there, you know, the, the Canadian Rights Act has not had a serious reform since 1997. Um, there was a review panel in the early 2000s by uh, Justice Lafore recommending some changes. Um, and the big changes I think the federal system needs is number one, taking off the cap and damages. So the cap and damages, uh, aside from loss of income is only $20,000. Which is, you know, it's been set in 1997, so that in itself is problematic. Uh, provincial human rights bodies don't have a cap on those kinds of damages, and so they've kind of grown incrementally with jurisprudence. Uh, number two is I think we should get rid of the Canadian Rights Commission as a gatekeeper. Um, we've had provinces that have moved that way. The, the human rights systems operate far more effectively, in my opinion, uh, Ontario and BC in particular. Now you file a complaint and it's not investigated for three or four or five years first before you have the right to a hearing um, before the tribunal. So I would like to see that. Uh, uh, get the Human Rights Commission out of the way and as a gatekeeper to to the Human Rights Tribunal. Those are two big changes I think are, are long, long, long overdue. And um, you know, if parliamentarians could turn their attention back to the Human Rights Act and take a look where it was in 1997 when they made the last major amendments and what's been happening in the provinces, that would be great. Anyways, thanks. Thank you again, Garnet. I really appreciate. Um, you know, the opportunity to discuss this with you guys. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for for coming on. And maybe just just one uh, final question to you, if that's all right. I mean, um, in terms of the criteria changes to it, does it, I sometimes wondered, like, does it make sense to have a criteria-based framework at all when basically what we're going for is any case of unjustified discrimination where somebody is being discriminated against for, for based on something that's not relevant to the job or service they're accessing. Um, you know, does it make sense to have the list there at all? I mean, obviously, um, that's not the direction I'm going with this bill, but uh, but just blue skying here. I mean, what do you think? I don't know if people started firing people because they don't like their their T-shirts, I guess, uh, or their their blazers, or they have really bad ties. I guess that could maybe theoretically come up. Um, I mean, I lost some votes because of that. You know. <laughs> You can't take the voters to a human rights, uh, human rights commission. <laughs> um, you know, th those are, those are interesting points, but I think, I think the touchstones for us are, you know, what are those, you know, either immutable or very difficult to change personal characteristics that should be irrelevant for differential treatment. Uh, you know, that, that, those are the touchstones of dignity, like whether you wear a bad tie or not. I mean, for most of us anyway, shouldn't uh, reflect on, you know, uh, you know, deep feelings of, of your sense of self-worth and, and dignity, which, which would be the case, you know, if we're talking about, uh, you know, religion or sexual orientation or gender or race or national origin and those kinds of things. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if we need to go to a more generalized definition of uh, discrimination. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's really interesting. Can I comment that, on that? Yeah, no, it'll, please. But let me just just say first, um, 
it's interesting what you said about touchstones of dignity insofar as um, like it, the, the need for this amendment uh, that I'm proposing, I think does reflect the way in which political beliefs have become uh, such a, a fundamental part of identity for so many people. And, and that is a change. And that's partly why we're talking about it now. I think that, that um, whether you identify as a conservative or a libertarian or a liberal or a social democrat um, seems to mean more to people today than a lot of other identifiers did in the past. And I think there are, there are some interesting things about that, that trend. Uh, Bruce, um, uh, we're, we're, we're close to time. So why don't you give your, you know, respond and give your, your final wrap up comments. And then uh, uh, we'll just, we'll give um, maybe the last word. Paul, Paul, you've sort of given your closing comments here, right? Or did you have? No, those are my closing comments. Okay. All right. So, so Bruce, you, you give your, your response to closing comments, and then we'll leave it to Dwight to, to wrap us up. Okay, sure. I, I, I tend to agree with Paul with what he said about uh, the Human Rights Commissions and the kinds of things that might uh, warrant attention. Uh, but I want to go back to your suggestion about not needing grounds of discrimination. And I think the further you put you push this, the more absurd the whole thing becomes, right? So let's just start with this. People think, a lot of people, you know, go through their lives thinking discrimination is unlawful. And of course, that's not true at all. People discriminate all the time on all kinds of different things. They hire employees who are more qualified over employees who are less qualified. That's discrimination. And by discrimination, I mean to, to distinguish and treat differently. You distinguish between the employees who are better qualified and you treat them differently than the employees who are less qualified, the, uh, the prospects who are less qualified. That's discrimination. It's not unlawful discrimination and it shouldn't be. But every law we have on the books, I mean, every law, a dangerous word, but laws discriminate between two sets of things. The law against murder discriminates between people who commit murder and people who don't. I mean, that's the whole idea. So it's not possible to say, right, no discrimination, because that wouldn't make any sense. Now, the question about whether or not we should not allow discrimination on any characteristic that is immutable. So does that mean we're not going to be allowed to discriminate on the basis of, you know, attractiveness or, or height? I mean, right now, if you run a restaurant and you just want to hire attractive people to be servers, you're allowed to do that because there's not a ground listed in the code. But, made it a lot harder for me to pay my way through university. <laughs> um, but, you know, but, but the thing is, the, the further you push this, the more absurd it becomes. And, and it, it, I think it reveals the, the error in the, in the whole idea. Now that we are in a place where it is regarded to be absurd, to be distinguishing between people on the basis of their basic characteristics like race and sex and so on. To, to, to finish off, though, I agree with your observation that politics is becoming a, a, a way in which people identify themselves. We are a polarized country in political terms. And it is that kind of a country that requires this particular ground of discrimination. And as I said, particularly in the federal realm, we've talked about those industries where it would be very important and very effective. Uh, Indian, bang, uh, Indian bands, Canada Post, banks, maybe social media companies, but especially my favorite, the CBC. Wouldn't it be nice to be able 
to require the CBC not to discriminate on the basis of political view. That would be a treat. Yeah, I mean, um, I think when you when you talk about journalism, again, it, there's the question of, of what is a bona fide occupational qualification. Um, when, you know, when, but um, Bruce, I, I think I want to maybe just respond to one point you made, which was uh, one other point you made, which was in terms of us becoming more polarized on political lines. Like, I think, I think that's really true. Um, you're like, uh, and Paul was talking about this, about the sort of historic divisions that existed between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, there, there was one time, there was a time in this country when, when yeah, those, there were those sharp divisions along, for instance, religious lines. And um, those have generally gone away. I, I suspect that, um, that, that most Canadians have interactions with people of different faiths, different, uh, different ethnic backgrounds and so forth. But at the same time, we, we are, there's kind of a new polarization where I suspect there are, there are plenty of people out there who wouldn't generally have guests in their home who have, uh, who have radically different political views than them, for example, um, that that kind of um, uh, compartmentalization on the basis of political views is becoming more common. So, so maybe we're, we're, we're depolarizing on some dimensions while polarizing on, on others. And, and that points to the need for, uh, well, yes. well, I mean, those, those are, those are phenomena we have to think about and, and their broader implications, but they do point to needs for adaptations yeah. to the, to I the think act. that's fair. I think that's fair. And, and, and if I can go back and just um, make an observation about uh, Dwight's distinction between, you know, renting apartments and renting a room in your house. I mean, it's interesting that in those more closely held spaces, the intimate spaces, we have an attitude where we think, oh, well, but that's just your personal preference. That's okay. It's okay to be able to discriminate if you're renting a room, because after all, it's your room, it's your house, so you should be allowed to discriminate. Well, see, that's very interesting because that says there are some situations in which discrimination and the expression of your preferences is, is, is legitimate. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging thing to have to decide where the line is between those spaces and those circumstances and the other circumstances in which you know, we cannot tolerate any kind of expression of a preference at all. Mm -hmm. All right, Dwight, uh, last word to you. Anything you want to respond to or wrap up comments about the bill, the Human Rights Act, any of the points of discussion we've had so far? Um, sure, the, I'd make three quick points, I think. Um, and so one of those is just on the, uh, the last point that Bruce just raised. I, I would perceive it as more a, a balancing as between issues of intimate association and um, obligations against discrimination, um, more so than uh, a suggestion that... Uh, uh, that we're allowing the expression of certain kinds of preferences. Um, uh, certainly in uh, the public arena, preferences based on uh, the different grounds of discrimination, I, I think we've said that those aren't permissible grounds for preferences. Um, they, they amount to grounds for discrimination because they, uh, they run against uh, people's uh, dignity and uh, uh, so forth. But um, a second thing though that I would just say is that uh, uh, this is a really interesting discussion around sort of the trend towards politics taking on a, a new meaning within identity. And there's some interesting um, sociological scholarship uh, in the United States, which could be different on this than in Canada, um, that's, uh, that said that in the past, the strongest causality was from religion to politics. 
And now there's a bit of a trend in the opposite direction where sometimes politics is determining religion. And I don't say that to undermine the deeply held faith of anyone that's, that's in the traditional direction, um, but to say uh, simply that in some instances, politics is very central to the identity of people in ways that affects their choice about um, which particular denomination they go to or, or something along those lines, and that there's interesting work along those lines. Um, politics has taken on a, a big role in identity, and that makes sense in terms of it then becoming a ground of protection. Um, the last thing I'd say is polarization is a big issue, uh, and I'm just glad we have forums like this where, uh, where people can talk across different viewpoints. And I've learned some things from both of Bruce and Paul, and I'm just glad you brought us together to have this discussion, and thank you for, for having us. Okay, well, thank you so much to all three of you. This has, I think, been a, a great, substantive, uh, productive discussion. And um, and uh, I, I hope people will uh, check out uh, the bill and read more about it. We'll share some more information in the description, uh, a few things that I've wrote, a link to the press conference where I, I launched the bill. And uh, we're only just beginning. The bill's just been tabled. I think there'll be there'll be more discussion on it. And I hope there's uh, there's more uh, editorial commentary and debate back and forth about the, the provisions and the impacts of it. So uh, thank you so much to all three of you. And for those who are listening, um, go leave a review somewhere, share this episode on social media, um, talk to talk to these guys on Twitter if you liked or didn't like things they said. Uh, and, um, and we'll be back with another episode in seven days. Thank you.